0: The U.S. and China recently concluded a two-day strategic summit in Washington. Both sides agreed on the need to create and abide by what they're calling a new cyber code of conduct, the details of which they're going to hammer out in the future. Hi, I'm Matthew Schwartz, Executive Editor for Information Security Media Group. I'm speaking today with John Pescatori, Director of Emerging Security Trends at SANS Institute. And the question I have for John is, If hackers can obtain tens of millions of records on federal employees in one go, should we even be discussing so-called codes of conduct? Or, as a nation, should the U.S. be doing more to protect systems from any and all potential attackers, be they nation-state-sponsored or cybercriminals? John, does this cyber code of conduct matter?
1: If you take the longer view, it's sort of like we're in the Cold War all over again, but instead of it being a sort of nuclear Cold War with Russia, it's a cyber Cold War with China. So if you sort of look back to those days, there never really was this sort of mythical red phone, you know, that the president of the U.S. could pick up and talk to the president or whatever it was called of Russia. But, you know, there were mechanisms put in place so that US and and Russia on both sides of that Cold War could sort of communicate, and there were essentially rules of engagement and rules of behavior. The US would fly our planes over Russian borders and they would launch and repel us and they would probe into Europe. You know, there were rules and behaviors, and, and there was no, you know, we didn't call the UN and say, hey, give. Russia a ticket. You know, they violated the rules of behavior. So anyway, there is a need for that kind of thing in modern cyber Cold War kind of thing we're in. But there's a lot of differences between physical warfare and cyber warfare. And there's also, I guess the only way to put it is, you know, the Snowden revelations sort of take away the high ground. Not that everybody at government levels didn't know every country does that type of espionage against each other, but once it becomes public. So yes, I think there is a need for this kind of thing. No, it really doesn't have any teeth unless there is this mutually assured destruction kind of feel to it, which doesn't seem to be happening right now. It's really
0: interesting you bring up the moral high ground aspect to it, because US officials have always said, well, China hacks for industrial espionage purposes, we hack just to keep an eye on things. Attempted to make a distinction there.
1: Yeah, I actually argued that a couple years ago, I forget who it was, Sophos or Kaspersky, I think, actually had some kind of forum in D.C. and I was on a panel with one of the guys who had just left being the director of NSA. He made that statement. This was after WikiLeaks, but before Snowden. Eh, what's the old quote? Was it Winston Churchill? Or... "Ma'am, will you sleep with me for a million dollars? Of course not. Will you sleep with me for five dollars? No. What do you think? I am a prostitute. And Churchill responded, we've already determined that. Now we're just haggling over price. So... Saying you penetrate software and corporate systems of other countries, but you're only doing it for national intelligence, not economic espionage. That's a pretty fine distinction, and when you take a global view, but you know, bottom line is any code of conduct is going to be a two-way street kind of thing in this day and age. Whereas in Cold War days, the U.S. was not taking over countries in Europe. We were pretty clean that we were not doing expansion by taking over other countries. But when you narrow it down to cyber espionage it's not so clean
0: that's a really interesting distinction i hadn't thought about the expansion part of the metaphor the cyber cold war metaphor that you always hear
1: the other thing i like we were talking about this internally in asia there's really no cultural norms against piracy software piracy not i don't know about you know like ships and all this seems to be that happens in other parts of the world but you know software piracy the u.s and most of Western Europe is largely railed against that. and We have norms about intellectual property, but that's not the norm in Asia. The world gets to decide what becomes a global norm. And I think as we see more and more software development and digital intellectual property being developed in Asian companies, there's certainly large Asian software companies, there's Asian security software companies now, we'll probably see cultural shifts, norms, change because they'll want to protect their intellectual property and the same people in the U.S. who used to do things like write the systems to steal music, the peer-to-peer network type things that were developed in the U.S. so people could steal music. Asian companies will say, well, wait a minute, you know, you shouldn't be pirating our software and China certainly is going to be one of those players in companies that sell software and their norms. So anyway, I think things don't move as quickly as technology, but I definitely think there's Need for two things: codes of conduct that countries do say, well, it isn't our. It's like trade packs. You know, it isn't our best interest to cooperate because we have something at risk. It's back to that mutually assured destruction thing. The second thing is from a law enforcement point of view. In the U.S., we like to blame China for everything, but the majority of damaging hacks come out of organized crime, some's in China, lots in Russia, lots in South America, lots in the U.S. So from a sort of cyber crime treaty that's been a NATO-driven thing, this way that countries can cooperate and say, whoa, this organized crime is damaging the global economy. We need to do something together. That's another code of conduct that needs to happen where it's you know balanced, where it's all the countries feel they're benefiting from it. Personally, I don't think it's as difficult as, your, hey, how do we solve a global warming? There's a lot of precedent for it in law enforcement, how law enforcement in different countries do work together to get things done without their presidents or congressmen having to pass legislation. So I'd look to some level of law enforcement cooperation first and later on more of these meaningful government treaties or that kind of thing.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, it seems like a much more practical and achievable aim than that more abstract concept of what are the limits of espionage.
1: Yeah, or even, you know, one thing that's been going on for ten years is when does something change from cybercrime to cyber warfare? If you look in the US, we sort of made a national policy move to say everything's cyber warfare and that hasn't worked out real well. Trying to address crime with armies never works. That definition of if somebody hacks into OPM and steals things is that Warfare? Is that just intelligence operations? Is it crime? If somebody hacks into Target and steals things for financial reasons, it seems like crime, but if it came from the US and we we hacked into, you know, I don't know what the biggest department store in China is. So anyway, there are some sort of norms the, the world as a whole has to establish slowly. But you know, again, I think the biggest problem facing Joe citizen and Joe business owner is cyber crime, not NSA spying on them and not China spying on them. So, your government and China spying on them. So, you know, the reality is if progress is going to be made, it will be made at that law enforcement level. This has been true for you know, ten InfraGuard chapters in in each city that the FBI sponsors, and and when the FBI and the Secret Service were more active in trying to do something against cybercrime, we made way more progress. And in the past five years, you've actually seen this lack of progress because the focus has all been, oh, it's a national security problem. Which a it's not. Two national security solutions never move fast enough.
0: Director of National Intelligence James Clapper has said China's the number one suspect behind the OPM breach. But he's also said that until there is a way to penalize that type of apparent hacking or espionage, organizations really just need to focus on defense.
1: We don't want to blame the victims. OPM was horribly insecure, but that's just like me if I forgot to lock my doors at night. It's still a crime to break into my house. But rather than focus on who launch these attacks, whether it's the ones in the U.S. that damage the U.S., or ones that damage European governments or business, whatever. You know, the real focus needs to be just like when a plane crashes. You know, the focus is on, okay, why did this happen? Who was at fault? What needs to change to not make it happen next time? And, you know, the fact that the pilot who crashed the plane into the ground was Egyptian or Chinese or U.S., you know, or whatever, doesn't really matter. The system that allowed a suicidal pilot to be flying the plane, something needs to change there. So there's a great idea Steve Bellavin had. The idea that why isn't there a crash team that is called out after these major breaches, you know, let's just say in government or top ten breaches per year, just the way there is a crash team when a big plane crashes or a train crashes or a ferry overturns in the Mediterranean to say, Okay, why did this happen? Was it pilot error? Was it something? What needs to change? And there's a great history of that working to reduce vulnerabilities. Things still crash. They crash less frequently than they did 10 years ago, and they crash for different reasons. So that's something that needs to happen in cybersecurity more than saying, let's hope that intelligence agencies will obey a code of conduct or that criminals will obey a code of conduct. First, you've got to focus on, let's make sure we lock the front doors and take the keys out of the ignition and then start talking about codes of conduct for criminals and intelligence agencies.
0: There was a great session at RSA 2014 about could we create a National Transportation Safety Board to investigate the equivalent of cyber crashes, but I think the end result of that discussion was good luck.
1: You know what always happens? I call this the cult of the difficult problem in security. Nobody really ever wants to solve a security problem because everybody's making a lot of money. (laughs) So they tend to focus on, well, wait a minute. You know, we couldn't do it for every incident, and we couldn't do this, and we couldn't do that. Well, you know, the reality is, if you fix a few things at a time and raise the bar and raise the bar, and ra- that's how things get better. Not, you know, we can't stop planes from clashing ever, so let's not change it. And let's let them keep storing oxygen canisters in the overhead bins that led to the Air Florida cr- Nope, let's change that. Where progress always gets made in security, just like I mentioned the law enforcement thing, is usually bottoms-up, small group solving, related problems. You know, for example, it took this recent Heartbleed vulnerability in SSL, but finally... The big player said, whoa, we're really dependent on SSL. Let's fund this open source group to, you know, shore up the security of the infrastructure. That didn't come out of a government. It didn't come out of legislation. It didn't come out of let's solve every problem with software. And, you know, that that's really how progress gets made. That SSL, Heartbleed SSL thing was the closest to a crash team descending on it. You know, that's that's happened in recent years.
0: That's a great example. I mean, right, because it just marshaled across the board support, funding, Kind of an action plan, and then they've learned from there and they're going on beyond just SSL and looking at the old code bases now.
1: Yeah, notice what they didn't do is say, let's add a code of conduct so people don't try to exploit these vulnerabilities. <laughs> yeah, they said, let's raise the strength of the materials high enough that normal use of them can stay secure, and then if we find people are you know, dynamiting the bridges, let's start worrying about that. But right now, when. People bump the guardrail and the bridge falls down. Eh, let's not worry about the bad actors first. Let's make things strong enough for normal use. And that's the same, you know, OPM's a great example. Yes, it's a crime to attack a vulnerable system. But, you know, in the U.S., I don't know if they have this concept in Europe. There's this concept called an attractive nuisance. You know, if you have a swimming pool in your backyard and some kid drowns in your pool, if you didn't put a fence around your pool, you're liable, even though the kid trespassed on your property. You know, it's an attractive nuisance. And for years, lawyers have said, oh, and cybersecurity, they, yeah. and the laws still haven't evolved to cover that. But, you know, from a common sense point of view, you know, it really is, let's put fences around the attractive nuisances. Then write like code of conduct that say, don't climb the fence.
0: Right. Like Clapper was saying, let's focus on defense from a policy standpoint and a legal standpoint, because that's what we can Probably affects change in most quickly.
1: This is a range a little far field, but you know what they call traditional warfare now? They call it ballistic warfare, right? It's where we shoot moving projectiles at each other, and that's ballistic warfare, right? No bank can protect itself from government-sponsored ballistic warfare, right? If the government's going to get a jet fighter and bomb a bank, Russia's proved that. Serbia, you know, private industry cannot protect itself against government-level ballistic warfare. Private industry can protect itself against government-level cyber warfare. The same vulnerability the Chinese exploited, the cyber criminals stealing credit card numbers took advantage of the same vulnerability. The kid fooling around or the cyber vandals wanting to make a political point of save the animals kind of stuff. They're all exploiting the same vulnerabilities. You close the vulnerability, you stop the state-sponsored actor, and you stop the... Now, state-sponsored guys are better at hiding once they get in, but if you close the door, better nobody gets in or many fewer things get in. So anyway, there really is this sort of, we call it cyber hygiene. If you want to agree on something, agree on cyber hygiene kind of rules that everybody in businesses should obey and make the job that much harder for the bad stuff to happen.
0: John, thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. Thanks for joining us.